Hey, this is Gary. You're listening to John and Kevin's Big Stupid Podcast. Have fun. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is John and Kevin's Big Stupid Podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm John. And ladies and gentlemen, today we have another very special guest. Another one? Another wow, we're really we're, we're bringing in the guests. We're just this doing what, this is what we're doing. Week after week, okay? Um, we had Chris Northrup last week. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, introducing... Scott Dickers. Yes. Give it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, for those of you who might not who might not know out there, but uh, Scott was one of the co-founding editors of The Onion. Yes. That is correct. Yeah. I didn't know you were waiting for affirmation. <laughs> um, yeah. Co-founder, uh, editor of The Onion. Um, he is a, a best-selling author. He... Um, you currently have a, a class that you are that you're working on, um, a speaker, entrepreneur. Yep, these right. things are. I can affirm all of those things. <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you for coming on, Scott. My pleasure. You have the best podcast name of all podcasts. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. I'll take. <laughs> um, so, uh, as we get started. Um, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about yourself, like growing up, like, you know, how, how that was and, and, you know, where you come from, give give everybody a, a background. Sure. Uh, so I was born in a Somali refugee camp. In, <laughs> no, I, wasn't. I did grow up rather poor, grew up in the um, inner city of Minneapolis. They do have an inner city and my mom was on welfare. She was a single mom, and I was kind of a um, law-breaking and thieving ne'er-do-well child. And we moved. She remarried and moved to a small town in Wisconsin with my evil, drunken stepfather. Oh God! And I had always oh, done comedy. I'd always like loved Mad Magazine and Gilligan's Island and really got into Steve Martin, Woody Allen. And, but it wasn't until, and I'd always like done little comedy things, like written little comedy stories, tried to draw cartoons. But when I moved to Wisconsin, I went to high school and I sort of started taking it seriously. Like, oh, I think this is something I should do for a living. Uh -huh. I should do comedy. Because it's like my only outlet. It's the only thing I like to do. It's the only thing that I wanted to do and I wasn't good at it like make no mistake I was piss poor at it and nothing I did was funny or good yeah, just like John oh here we go there we go <laughs> that's how all comedians start out because you got to learn this stuff yeah and so I was primarily focused on performing I wanted to perform I wanted to be in front of the camera I was a real ham I was a real you know class clown and then I got into voice work. It was the first thing I was actually able to get into. I started doing voices for commercials and 
cartoons and stuff like that in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin, and a little bit in Minneapolis. And so those were like local gigs, local occasionally they get a national gig, but it was mostly local gigs. Mm -hmm. And then I started drawing cartoons as the second thing I did. And so I made a, you know, a little bit of money doing voice work. And then I was able to make a living as a cartoonist. I sold my cartoons and I got published and I self syndicated my cartoon to a bunch of newspapers and had a really big hit with one. I had several different comic strips, but one was a really big hit. I put out a, a self-published book that made the New York Times bestseller list and all this stuff, t-shirts that, that made me a ton of money. And I was pretty high in the hog. And then these two University of Wisconsin students approached me about being involved in this new college humor magazine they were starting up because I was like the big campus uh, king of comedy, you know, because of my comic. And they were just really sharp, really smart guys. Like some of the just smartest, sharpest, best looking guys I'd ever encountered in my, I was used to dealing with nerds and these were like cool guys. <laughs> they had girls and they were like really witty. It was just really charismatic. Like I had never met anyone who was charismatic before. It was, it was like meeting stars. And so that was Tim Keck and Chris Johnson. And they were wonderful you know, business leaders, like they didn't know, they were like 22 or something, but they were just so sharp. They knew how to manage people. They brought me in. They basically gave me the keys to the kingdom and said, do whatever you want. And I did whatever I wanted with The Onion for like a year. Tim and I, especially with brainstorm headlines and write stuff. And then they sold it to me and two other people a year later. So they were out and I was the head creative so i was like the editor mm -hmm. and my two partners were a business guy and a production guy production guy we bought out a year or two after that so for a while it was just me and my business partner who were the owners and i've i've surpassed the scope of your question <laughs> uh, no no it's fine it's fine <laughs> we're just we're going right into right into everything but yeah that's how that's, um, how, that's, how, just, that's how the onion got started and that's how i got into it Okay. I just want to. I just want to go back to when you were in high school. You know, you sure. said you wanted to do it. What What was the moment where you're like, "This is it. This is what I'm doing." Boy, like, was like, there a was, moment? Was there one moment? You know, where it's like it yeah. just clicked. Life for me, life is so rarely a moment. It's always like, oh, over this span of two years is kind of when that happened. Because I was doing stuff like I had two friends in high school. Uh, Vincent Taylor and Mark Leonard and we were like comedy buddies. We were like a comedy team and we did comedy together. We got a sound effect record with laugh track on it and we okay. wrote, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I see where this is going. We wrote a routine that matched the laugh track on the sound effect record. That's, oh, that's great. That's yeah, awesome. It was so fun. Great and we timing. made, we made skits and um, I made so many cassette skits and then I had two other friends who, those guys were my age. I had two other friends who were older than me. We would make really elaborate radio comedy plays and stuff. And we made movies, made a ton of movies. I got one of my movies got into a festival when I was in high school and it won an award. And so I was like, I was on fire. Like you couldn't stop me. I was trying to get successful in comedy, doing anything I possibly yeah. could, but I don't know the moment. Yeah. I, I think it probably was somewhere in my junior year or something. I think David Letterman, his late night show debuted in my junior year and 
that was a real revelation to me that somebody who was just really sarcastic all the time, it was such a new, fresh voice, right? Really spoke to me. It was like, oh, this is my kind of things and my comedy. The show was so funny. They had Chris Elliott on the writing staff. Jay Leno would come on and do these amazing bits. He was just this unknown college comic and he was so incredibly funny. He'd come on, he'd do, what's my beef, you know? Yeah. He's so great. I remember one of his jokes was, uh, you ever see that commercial? Yeah, you ever see that commercial with the guy? I'm not a real doctor, but I play one on TV. I'm thinking, hey, buddy, I've seen your show. You're not even an actor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just all his gags were so wonderful and so good. And obviously he'd been on the road honing them and he'd go on Dave and do his, his best, you know, 20 jokes or whatever. And I didn't know any of that, but it was just... That was his show was kind of like my window into ah that's the sort of thing I want to do. Um, I was I was gonna say who you were talking about like Steve Martin was your was one of your influences. Yeah, David Letterman. Uh, yeah, Steve Martin would go on David Letterman's show and always do a bit, which was very exciting to me. And he always had his specials. He'd do these comedy specials that were like hour long network. Uh, things that he would do and of course he'd always host SNL like you couldn't escape Steve Martin I bought his books bought his records yeah um so that was like that was different than than what was on TV before that right You're, very like, much so the type of the type of humor was almost like almost like vaudevillian like that like you had you had like Carol a, Carol Burnett um yeah like you, a setup punch yeah you know you, like yeah, you had those really hokey, corny sort of variety shows. And then the baby boomers kind of came in and took over TV comedy with SNL and with SCTV, that was a that was yeah. a big one, and Letterman. Yeah, everybody before that was very old fashioned, very like proper showbiz, you know, Johnny Carson, perfect example. And that stuff just never spoke to me. You know, some of these old comedians who would go on there and do their one liner from their nightclub bit and it just was not inspiring <laughs> at all and obviously now i've done more research i learned more about it and, and george carlin was obviously he predates that generation and he was amazing um and so many people stand on his shoulders obviously but literarily speaking like it was um mad magazine woody allen's books were the primary influence and then spy magazine came out a few years before The Onion, and that was really like painful because I, I always knew I could make something better than Mad or The National Lampoon because I just was uh-huh. never that impressed. I loved Mad, I loved that it existed, but I never really thought it was that fun. I never laughed. I think I was just so serious about it. It was like, I don't know, it's like a, a, like a teenage boy going to his very first striptease show. It's like you're just, <laughs> You're not you're not excited. You're just like fascinated. Like, oh my god, this is a thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I, 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 I used to buy those all the time, and I used to always just look in the little corners for the cartoons. Oh, the Sergio Aragonés. Those, 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 those little Absolutely. corner cartoons. I used to love those. <laughs> yep. But like you said, it was never laugh out loud. Funny. Never laugh out loud funny. And I always thought I I could do better than that. And that always inspires me when I see something that's not that great but it's out there and it's being successful. I feel like, hey, if they can do it, I can do it. No. But when Spy Magazine came out, that I saw that and I was like, I could never be that good. Like these people were just tops. 
so sharp in their writing and their ideas were so clever and so erudite. They were just like blue blood, New York geniuses who'd had all the best schooling. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any of that. And I just knew The Onion was never gonna be as good as Spy Magazine. How, um, how different from the Lampoon was the, was the Onion? Well, most of the Onion staff, I was the oldest one by far. I was like 24. And most of them were a little old for the Lampoon, or sorry, a little young for the Lampoon. So the Lampoon was very much a baby boomer publication. By the time we were old enough to appreciate it, it, was, it was, had really waned in its quality. So it wasn't anything to write home about. But there were some classic Lampoon products like their high school yearbook parody that we all knew and had seen and appreciated. The one thing the National Lampoon did for The Onion was it really raised the bar when it came to parody. When they would do a parody, they would make it look exactly like the thing they were parodying, like their famous Vietnamese baby book piece that Michael O'Donoghue wrote. It looks like a real baby book. It's got the same art and it just looks real. Before that, like with MAD, they're not working too hard to make it look real. They're doing funny, wacky caricatures. And, you know, on SNL, when they parody a movie, they're not, they're kind of making it look like the set and they're painting John Belushi green to make him look like the Hulk, but it's not really, they're not working too hard. They, they really made me realize, oh, I get it. The more verisimilitude, the funnier. Mm -hmm. So we made the onion look and feel as much like a local small town newspaper that as we could and that really right, helped so so ba so basically you're talking about you like you're you're changing like like not changing but you're you're like young guys you're you're basically young Very you know young. and and i think i've read something that i don't know if you said it or it was, uh, in one of your profiles said something like you know a lot of uh, comedy at the time was written by people in their 60s and then acted by people in their 30s you know, yeah, I, so I was not it, the one who said that. I'm not sure. I, yeah, I've that, read it. I've read it somewhere like that. that but it was. That it was it's like it seems it was, like that's yeah. basically what was going on. Where it's just yeah. like, you know, you you guys are young guys and you're really pumping out this content, and it just seemed like, you know, it was like a like a fresh, uh, you know, like 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 a real fresh thing going on. Yeah, like if you get inspired by other comedy out there and you want to create something, there's a good chance what you create is going to be very similar to what you're impressed by and inspired by it. But for me, like I'm always inspired by things that aren't that great. They, that really excites me and lights a fire under me. So what that puts me in a position to do is invent something, you know, create something new and better that people haven't seen before. Because one thing about comedy is there's one essential ingredient in comedy and that is surprise. It must surprise or it's not gonna be funny. And so if you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing, you're, you're failing at the very first requirement of comedy. You've got to do something new and different. So that was always the thing, like come up with something totally fresh, totally different. And we were all comedy fans and pretty smart alecky guys. Not too many girls in the, in the first year or two, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> um, but we were just trying to entertain ourselves. And so when we came up with something that we thought was really funny and fresh, you know, we had, we had really strong bullshit detectors. So if we thought it was, ah, that's too much like a joke I saw on SNL in 1978, we better not do that, you know? Right. That's how it was.
Now it started off as a as an actual magazine. Yeah, it was a print newspaper. There was no such thing as the internet, except I think the Defense Department was using <laughs> the, the internet. And it was 1988. And yeah, we printed it on newsprint and hand delivered it on the street in Madison, Wisconsin, 15,000 copies, I think. And it grew a fan base in Madison and we increased our circulation, got more local advertising dollars. Did you say that like some, some, um some like Barnes and Nobles would like, would like set it up in their vestibules and like sell it. Yeah. Uh, nobody that we, that I was aware of was selling. The only people who were selling it and we always loved this. We, we encouraged them to do so was homeless people who would sell that homeless magazine or newspaper on the street. <laughs> they would make more money selling the onion. We we're like, sell the onion, sell it. Get the money. <laughs> but, Barnes and Noble, yeah, they put it in there with all their other freebies. There's so many free giveaway newspapers in those days, especially in Madison. We're competing against like seven other newspapers. And it was a weekly. And as we grew, we started to expand. We just started distributing it in Milwaukee and Chicago. And then we hit like uh, Champaign, Urbana, Illinois, and then Boulder, Colorado. And then it was like the mid 90s one of our tech people were like, hey, you guys should put up a website because you're making all this content. You're putting out this newspaper. We just put it on the web and everybody could read it. And I was like, all right, fine. Do it. Probably do a hell of a lot more content <clears throat> on the web than you could in a, in a newspaper. Well, we weren't thinking that way. We were just thinking it's just another medium for, for people for to see it. Exposure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we weren't thinking this is a new medium where that was interactive at all. We were just thinking, oh, we'll put up our stuff. And so they designed, a, we had to pay $400 to get a, a web host. And our design guy put up a website. And we were the very first humor website. Really? Ever. really? Yeah, <laughs> the first one. Wow. That's something. And because we were the first, there wasn't really that much on the internet. It's like 95 or 96. Yeah, we got written up everywhere, like overnight. The New Yorkers writing about us, newspapers in Australia are writing about us, and we're like, "Holy shit, this is bigger than I thought." <laughs> That's like us, you know. When we started putting our stuff out there, like we just grew, like in France. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're we're a big deal. Two percent of our listeners come from France. That's a lot. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> oh, that is a lot. Of people. But we do have French listeners. <laughs> we do. Wonderful. We, we have one. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. So, so what, what were those days like, you know, chugging along in the, with, you know, with the onion? Well, it was a very romantic time because, you know, you look back and it's definitely the salad days because you have no money. You're just running on fumes. <coughs> you would stay up all night drinking Cokes and eating delivered pizza, trying to make each other laugh. And like it was in the really early years, it was just like a couple, three people at most. It would always fall to me ultimately. So at two and three in the morning, I'm left there alone trying to put everything together. But, you know, over time you gather writers and they help, but then nobody, you know, for what you can pay them, they're not, they're not typically hanging out till three in the morning. There's one guy, Rich Dom, who hung out with me till all hours of the night. Cause he was like me. He, this was his passion. He loved it. And, it was so fun to just sit up and try to make each other laugh. I remember one night we stayed up and we came up with the front page headlines for like the next two months. It was like, oh, oh wow. 
an amazing brainstorming session. He went on to be the uh, showrunner of the Colbert Report, and now he's a sitcom writer in Hollywood. So there's so many great success stories from the Onion, people who worked there and moved on, which uh, just makes me beam with pride. But it was kind of like being in production on a poorly planned, low budget, independent student film continuously because it was unorganized. <laughs> nobody had any money. Nobody knew what they were doing, figuring it out as we go, doing our best, you know, to, to slap it together. Sleepless nights, a lot of all-nighters. We did this thing called the all-weekender where you wouldn't sleep from Friday to Monday. Our paper was due on Sunday night. So okay. we, would, we would just stay up and try to make it, per always trying to make it perfect, make it better than the last issue. So by the time we went online, we had been doing that for eight years and we got pretty good at it, you know? So we were ready for the exposure when it happened. It was an organic, it was good. It's like, you don't want to give a chimpanzee a gun. What you want to do is you want to train the chimpanzee, have him evolve into a human, have him go through gun safety training, then give him a gun. Yeah. So it's like if you give somebody too young fame and fortune and comedy, they're going to crash and burn like Chris Farley, you know? Oh, God. Yeah. And we, we, were, we were lucked out because it, it took us a long time. I think if we had been in New York, we probably would have succeeded sooner. It helped us that we were in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so now um, tell us about your books, the, the books that you've written. I've written so many goddamn books. Somebody <laughs> yesterday, literally somebody told me, it was, uh, somebody was interviewing me and they said, so you've written two books, one about each of the upcoming presidential candidates. And I was like, I did? Really? really? <laughs> oh my and, I had to real and I realized, oh, I did, yeah, I did this book at The Onion, uh, a fake autobiography of Joe Biden called The President of Vice. And then I did this book, Trump's America, uh, buy this book or Mexico will pay for it. buy this book and Mexico will pay for it. And there were years ago, you know, like the Biden book was like six years ago. The Trump book was before he got elected. Uh, it was just a big book about how, what it would be like if Trump became president. And um, were you right? <laughs> yeah, so much of that book has come true. It's shocking how much of that book has come true. <clears throat> it's a fun book. So. Yeah, every once in a while I'll put out a humor book. I did books of cartoons when I, when I started doing cartooning. And I've got a ton of those. And then The Onion put out some books. I was always heading up those projects. And now I'm writing nonfiction books. I just um, finished the third in a series of books in the How to Write Funny series where I literally just spell out how you do comedy, how, how you write it. Uh-huh. And that first book, How to Write Funny, has been shockingly successful. Like, just people are lapping it up. They want to know. They want to know the secrets to how you craft comedy. And I, after doing it for 20 years, and when you do it repeated, repeatedly, like for a weekly publication, you learn it. Like, you get the craft, and you can't fuck up. Like, you have to do it. You have to deliver. Mm -hmm. So there's no... Um, there's no random element. There's no hope that, oh, I hope this is funny. Like you have to have a science for how things work, but you also have to have variety and it has to be different and new all the time. So I just wrote down the recipe, spelled it all out. And that's been really fun. And this led to my 
I started a, a series of courses at the Second City in Chicago based on that book to train people how to write comedy. And then a lot of those people would get jobs at The Onion. It was kind of like the farm team for The Onion and for Clickhole, which The Onion owns. And then I left Second City last year. Now I'm doing it on my own online, which is very rewarding and delightful. What is your uh, writing process like? Like, how, how do you? Right now, my writing process is I get up around 5.30 or 6 in the morning and I write until about 10. And at some point in there, I do some exercise. But that's basically my writing window. And I'm working on a novel now, so I'm using all of that. I'm write, trying to write like 3,000 word chapters every day. <laughs> it's not that it's not that bad it, you know 3,000 words I can do that in a couple hours if I'm on a roll well it, it's funny I want to go back to when you said you know uh, being funny is kind of like a science I actually wrote that down you know where it, it seems like you know you you've broken down comedy to where it's basically a science totally you and know, the way we like, would what, talk yeah, yeah, and I think you had something like 11 points of funny I th I think oh no, there's, there's, a, there's literally a, a mathematical formula that, that I use. It's like subtext uh, over the one or more of the 11 funny filters. And then I define what all those things are. I was actually listening to your well, show. It was a joke, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but we would sit around the Onion office like discussing jokes in the meeting and talking about why they work. And we sound more like mathematicians than jokes, you know, or than, than comedians because of the way we talk about the, the craft and the puzzle of putting together a good joke, you know, and the headlines are all just one liner jokes. It's all they are. You, um, on your, I was, like I said, I was listening to your podcast. Um, and you had the, the one that was about how to write a joke. <laughs> oh yeah. The solo episode. Yeah. And you were like, you're like, this episode is not going to be that funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! The episodes, the episodes normally aren't funny. The point of the show is to get in the weeds and talk serious talk about comedy. Yeah, but I mean, that's it, what we do. You know, but anybody just you know think, oh, they're going to talk about comedy. It's going to be a blast. You know, <laughs> that's what they think. Yeah, and it's so funny because I'm, I'm listening and I, I don't give a shit because you know I, I want to learn and whatever, so it doesn't bother me. But as I'm as I'm listening, I was like, I was like, yeah, this is just like. You're breaking it down like like a mathematician, it, like yeah. exactly like you said. It was like it was like being like you, like you're a professor. Yeah, that's you know? kind of how I feel. I'm old enough now. I've been doing it long enough. I should be like a, a professor emeritus of comedy at this point. So um, I came I came across um, your I was on Instagram and your ad popped up for my course, my online course. course. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about your course and, and what you're doing there and you could, you could plug it sure. a little. Sure. So it's funny you mentioned the ads cause just today I started doing different ads. Like the ads really were weird at first cause I'm not much of a salesman and you have to sell to do ads. So I started doing tips instead. I just, I do comedy tips and those have been working great. Like those work better than me trying to sell <laughs> the course. Yeah. I just give out free tips comedy tips but yeah so uh, the courses I taught at Second City ranged from just teaching people how to write a comedy sketch or a comedy piece there was a, a, a class focused on writing viral videos screenplays stuff like that but 
the course, so I reached out to my students and I said, well, okay, if I was to do a new course, what should it be on? And the vast majority of the responses came back. What we want to learn about is the, the comedy business. Like, how do you get in the business? How do you get an agent? How do you sell stuff? How do you make a living at it? How do you navigate that world? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, nobody's ever done that class, I don't think, that I've heard of. So I created this course called Comedy Business School, where you get an MBA in comedy, and you learn what it takes to go out and be a successful, funny person. And a lot of people think, oh, that's easy. You just have to be funny. No, that's not absolutely not what it takes. There are many funny people who are working at Burger King and are never going to succeed in comedy because they're not doing the right things. On the flip side, there are a lot of people who aren't that funny, who do the right things, who succeed. So this course is not about teaching you to be funny, although I do give out my books for free because they're a good supplementary uh, piece of material to have. Next. <laughs> and it's a good bonus. But the whole focus of the course is just how do you navigate the business? How do you do the things you need to do to succeed in the business? I figure if you want to be funny, that's your problem. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you write satire when real life currently is so fucking bizarre like yeah. like <laughs> you got trump supporters yelling at native americans to go back where they came from right and you got trump you know saying you know maybe uh maybe if you inject yourselves with you know just <laughs> bleach yeah you know? Right. i mean ha like he's writing it for you what, yeah like, it there so Satire is actually easier when things are really tough and really crazy and really depressing because th then you have the straight man. When things are good, everything's hunky-dory, it's really hard to do comedy. There's just nothing to play off of. Trump and all the madness of, of his supporters and all the ignorance and the idiocy in the world is, is difficult because, so you mentioned the 11 funny filters in, in, that I talk about in my process. And when people say, oh, well, Trump is already so funny, you can't do the jokes anymore. It's true that he basically, he and his supporters take care of two of the 11 funny filters. So it's really hard to use those two. And they are hyperbole and irony because his supporters have no sense of irony. Their hypocrisy is going to be funnier than any irony you could concoct. You just, you can't top it. And Trump will always out hyperbolize you. No matter how much you try to hyperbolize his behavior, he's going to one up you. That's his whole thing. But there's, there's nine more. Like there's plenty more <laughs> funny filters. There's misplaced focus. There's wordplay. There's analogy. There's meta humor. There's reference. Um, there's shock humor. You know, there's so much. So when I did my Trump's America book, it was a real fun challenge to try to do all that comedy and make Trump funny in a, in a made up comedy world in a way that was really funny and entertaining. And here, the, the real trick there was we were trying to appeal to Trump supporters as much as to Trump, Trump haters. haters. And the reason we wanted to do that was I've always been a big believer, especially in written comedy that you have to make it as, accessible as possible. You can't purposefully cut out a whole group of people. 
So the way we did that book is we wrote it in the voice of an ardent Trump supporter. It's like an encyclopedia that, like an old fashioned encyclopedia that was patriotic, you know? So it's like our great president Trump, blah, blah, blah. So the supporters will read that and they won't know it's ironic. So they're gonna get all the jokes that are peppered throughout that but the main entryway of the voice is, is not going to be, it's not going to rub them the wrong way. And it's not going to insult them. And yet we're still going to be able to deliver the Trojan horse of our, you know, tearing down Trump jokes <laughs> to those people. Um, well, see that, that's what I was thinking as we, as I was, uh, you know, just, you know, reading up on you and everything. And it was just kind of like, you know, like you go after Trump, are you going to go after Biden too? Like, is this something you're going to do? I mean, because it's kind of like, you yeah, know, the, go both sides because, like, there's a lot of good stuff there, too. Yeah, The Onion went after Biden a lot. They turned him into this. And I was there when we were doing that. They turned him into this kind of Rust Belt dirtbag character right. who washed his Trans Am shirtless in front of the White House and stuff like that. And the, the book we did on him was, was that character. Right. So... Any, anytime there's a president, you want to sort of find out what's, okay, what's a character trait you can assign to that president that's funny and silly and kind of rings true in a way, or at least is uh, character irony, you know, to, to uh, bring some laughs out of it. Me personally, I'm not really that much in the political satire game, though my novel does have some political bent to it, uh, this uh, satirical novel I'm writing. But I, thankfully, I'm out of the business of trying to keep up with the news cycle every week and doing jokes about, you know, who the president is at that particular time. And I've always enjoyed that. I've been doing it ever since Reagan, honestly. I started doing uh, skits on the radio as Ronald Reagan. And then <laughs> I was doing George W. Bush on NPR, and I was doing Clinton. I did Clinton for that um, MTV show. Celebrity Deathmatch. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And um, wow. <laughs> did, did a lot of Clinton. And I would always perform the president's voice for The Onion radio news because we had this radio news show that was syndicated all around. And then I, I did George W. Bush. Uh, I was in um, Robert Smigel's TV Funhouse cartoon on SNL doing Bush because he found my Bush impression. He said, that's the one I want. <laughs> that was exciting. Um, but yeah, once uh, I, I did Obama a fair amount for The Onion, but I haven't really gone into Trump because I just sort of feel like I've aged out and I'm not really interested in doing that anymore. You had, um, you had said something about uh, wordplay and stuff. And I remember listening to your show and you said, um, talk, when I talk about wordplay, you said, I don't mean puns. And you, you kind of like poo-pooed puns. And I... I always thought they were, I guess in my, in my impression of them, that they were always like, um, witty. Yeah. Witty, like high, like highbrow. And oh, they're, they're, you're they're, like, I feel yeah. like that's a complete <laughs> fucking opposite. <laughs> well, that your, 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 your opinion, Kevin is like negative, um, 0.5 on the, um, 11 points of funny. All right. So, so you're, you're below the uh, grade right there. Yeah. So my, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Like wordplay is akin to like Mensa puzzles. Some people like it for, as an intellectual thing. And that's part of what people like about it, part of what makes it funny. But in order for it to really get laughs, 
it has to have good subtext. Like it has to be saying something. And a lot of puns don't have subtext. They're just like word switches that sound the same. And the only subtext is, oh, those two words kind of sound the same. But, and there's another thing about puns. Whenever there's a joke that has a pun in it, if it only works reading it one way, like for one of the meanings of the word, but it doesn't work the other way, that's a bad, that's a groaner. The best puns work when the, the word can be used in both meanings. So I'll give you an example. There's this great onion headline, uh, trophy wife mounted. <laughs> so um, the word trophy and mounted are both puns in the headline and the sentence works four different ways if you take the meaning of trophy both ways and the meaning of mounted both ways. Same thing with another headline, um, robot charged with battery. Um, charged and battery, same thing. So you've got four different ways you can read the joke and it works logically with each reading. So those are clever word plays, but uh, a a one, of, one of those jokes from like an elephant joke book or Laffy Taffy isn't gonna have that. It's gonna have a pun like, um, how, uh, how did the frog die? He croaked. Yeah. Um, that's only makes sense one way because you take croaked to mean uh, died, it makes sense. But if you take croaked to mean talked, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my long, boring answer about puns. No, it's fine. Exactly <laughs> what we want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, in in the kind of political climate that we're in now, and the um, with with um, the like kind of cancel culture and and stuff that we have going on, do you think it's harder to do comedy now because it's like dancing on a minefield that you might say the wrong thing, piss the wrong person off, and and then you're just done. Yeah, I had an ad out the other day that had a monkey at a typewriter and somebody wrote a comment, uh, monkeys are an endangered species and should not be used in advertising. I can't. And I thought, and I thought oh, for I God's sake. Oh, <laughs> oh God, for God's sake. This shit, this is driving, so, me. It's driving me nuts. Yeah, but having said that, I will say that I don't think it's any harder at all. And I know a lot of comedians have stopped speaking at colleges. They've stopped performing at colleges because they get too much uh, blowback from, you know, anti-gay joke or an anti-women joke or whatever. But here's the thing. I've always, I've always hated political correctness because it's annoying, but I have always abided by its core principles because the core principles of political correctness as the term is typically used, mean just be polite to people and treat people the way that they ask to be treated. Call them the names they wanna be called. And if you do that, if you're polite, you're never gonna run into problems. So The Onion has been around for 30 years. We started writing humor way before people started talking about gay rights or gay marriage or anything. Any kind of gay anything in comedy was played for laughs. You know, it's like, mm -hmm what are you gay you know and that was just the the way humor was yeah. but we were enlightened college students liberals all of us and we figured well let's just talk about them like people and and not um single them out 
and pick on them for their difference because they don't want that. That's impolite. And they're already a minority that is uh, targeted for violence. Like, why would you want to bring more of that on them by picking on them? So our hearts have always been in the right place. And so you can go back uh, and look at anything in the eye. Like we've used the N word 20 times. I, I, I still uh, can look back and, and feel good about the context in which the word was used. Any gay joke we told, I can feel good about the context. For example, one of our better stories, I think it was the early 90s, was the headline was, why do these homosexuals keep sucking my cock? And it's like, it was a great, funny article <laughs> that tapped into homophobia and that the source of homophobia is, is often like, is often like um, latent homosexual yearnings that are repressed. And it was really smart, funny. I mean, but it's just a lot of dick jokes. I mean, it was just funny. Um, so yeah, I don't have any problem with that. I still go to colleges. I still talk. I'll say whatever the fuck I want. I'll swear. I'll make fun of minority groups because I, I think I know how to do it in a way that's respectful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've, I feel this, the same, the same way. Like, like shit, shit's funny, you know, differences are funny, but to do it, to do it in a, I almost want to say classy way, like to, to not, to do it where you're not, putting somebody down, you know what I mean? Well, like, yeah, so there's a core formula that I've always used at, at The Onion and in all my work, and that is uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So if you're going after the powerful, you're good. Everybody's gonna laugh at that. Everybody likes to see the powerful brought down to size. So if it's the president, if it's the establishment, if it's the media, if it's religion, anything that's an established power, Go after them all you want, you're good. But if you go after the people who are disenfranchised or they're already down, like victims of a tragedy, homeless people, you know, an oppressed minority group, anything like that, nobody's laughing at that. Nobody finds that funny. And you just come off mean, you know, so mm -hmm. I don't do it. You can get perilously close to seeming like you're making fun of those groups and have a lot of fun like teetering up against that line. But as soon as you cross it, then everybody's gonna go, oh, you've gone too far, you've gone too far. How have you been dealing with uh, quarantine? Like, uh, I gotta be honest with you guys, it is the best thing to ever happen to me. <laughs> now I know people are out there getting sick. I know people are suffering. People are dying and it's really tragic, but I gotta tell you, I could not have wished for a better Thing to happen than COVID-19. I'll tell you why. Go ahead. I, I'm an introvert. Uh, I am practically a recluse. Now, I don't have to leave my house. Like, I, I have an excuse for anytime somebody says, hey, I want to go catch lunch. I don't, don't I, I, <laughs> like, I, I hate holidays with a passion. Have always hated holidays. Have hated obligatory gatherings. Those are gone now. I've always hated sports, everything about them. I hate when people talk about them. I hate when people say, hey, did you catch the game? And all The games are gone. There's no more games, so I don't have to hear about it. I have nothing but time to sit and write and work and be left alone. It's beautiful. 
It's absolutely beautiful. I'm living the dream. I'm living like J.D. Salinger in his cabin in the woods. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was, I was trying to ask you. But, you know, have you gotten, you felt like you've been more um, creative and getting, you know, a lot more shit done? Yeah, I'm in better shape. I'm getting so much more work done. Because I get up, you know, I, I changed my whole schedule. So I'm getting up early. And so I have those hours in the morning where I, I work and I exercise and nobody bothers me because the whole rest of the world hasn't even woken up yet. Uh, I'm, I'm using best. this as an opportunity to put myself through boot camp again, you know, like re, um, kind of recharge my... You're hitting the reset button. I'm hitting you know, the we, reset button. We, we, we've talked about that. We've talked about that when this first started. You know, yeah, a couple, a couple weeks boot after. Boot I, yeah. I always felt like this is like a reset, man. This is like, is. I have to go to work. Okay. No problem. I'm getting, I'm getting paid. Okay. Yeah. No, no problem. You know what I mean? And it's like. And even if it's not, even if it's not a reset, it's a pause. Yes. You know, we just, it's yeah. like the world just hit the pause button. Hit the pause button. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've said, I just want to hit the pause button. I just right. want to pause time and get a few months where I can just write and just be alone. And I'm totally getting it. It's like a fantasy. <laughs> it's an absolute fantasy. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, listen, it, like you said, I, I know people have been sick, but like I've, I've been, this has been the best couple of months of my life. I'm not going to lie. This has been yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's been it's home good. with my kids, you know, I mean, be besides the homeschooling, <laughs> <laughs> Everything's great, you know, uh, spending more time with my kids, spending more time with my wife. I mean, yeah. the, the, way that, the way that our life is run, you have the kids, you know, in the morning, you wake up, you're rushing to get ready for work, to go right. to work, to drop the you're kids. You're a slave. You're a slave to the man. Yeah. And, then, the live. and then we get home around near dinner time, and then it's get dinner ready, feed the kids, get them into bed. And then my wife and I pass out on the couch. Right. You know, so now it's like, Oh, hi, <laughs> I remember you. <laughs> you know, and like, it's so much, we're, we're so much closer now. You That's know? great. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it too. The only thing I wish was different was, and I should have applied for unemployment. I was stupid not to, but you know, I work for myself. I haven't had a job with an employer since I was probably 19, but I lost a ton of income from doing all my speeches. I would travel around and give speeches and stuff. And thankfully I had other streams of income, but like, I feel bad for people who lost their job and the government's telling them to stay at home, but they're not giving them any money, oh. any help. Like, every other civilized country is paying people 2000 bucks a month like that at a bare minimum. If you're going to ask people to stay at home, pay them to stay at home, you know? Yeah. So that's been really, and I know that it's going to be a mortgage and a rent crisis coming up because so few people are able to pay their rent this last couple of months. We'll see what happens with that. So what, um, what's in the future for you? What have you, I mean, you said you're, you're working right now writing nonfiction. Yeah, I'm writing those nonfiction books. I, I always got a new one of those in the hopper. And I'm writing this comic novel right now, the satirical novel, which I'm really excited about. And I'll be doing the, the teaching and the online courses. 
And that's a good life for me. Like if I'm teaching some online courses about comedy and I'm still able to crank out some books and do some comedy books once in a while, I'm happy. Like that's great. So that's what I'm looking at. And now, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. When you said you were losing money from the uh, public speaking things, what is it? Mm-hmm. What, was that the colleges or is it like just yeah, going things? to colleges and associations, corporations, you know, uh, I probably did one or two of those a month and that's big money, you know, so they're gone. Well, you could probably, you could probably do one of those online too and have them. I have you know, started like, doing like, them online that they were slow to, to uh, figure out that you could do those online, <laughs> but yeah, they're figuring it out. You, you, you would think someone in the corporation would figure that out, but you they sure would. You sure would. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah. Um, once again, Scott, thank you so much for, for coming you know, for coming on the show or agreeing to do this. It is my pleasure. You know, um, we uh, look forward to seeing more from you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, one more thing. Would you, are you still involved with The Onion? Have you gotten away from it? Yeah, I'm totally out of it at this point. Would you? I, w- I was doing the, the Second City program where I was training <clears throat> people. That was in partnership with The Onion. But uh, I left that in... Well, last year, but I still have a key to the office and I guess I can still go in anytime I want, but it's so different now. It's so corporate. It kind of gives me the creeps to go back. So I don't even go back. <laughs> well, see, that's one of the questions I had, like, like before, before we ended, like how much has changed since like the nineties from your a point lot, of view? A lot. You know, like, yeah, like, it's totally different. In the nineties, it was a college dorm room. It was a family and now it's literally a corporation uh, you know univision bought it and uh <coughs> wait i think they might have just sold it to somebody but anyway it's just like they have a corporate board of directors a bunch of old men who run it and it feels like an accounting office when you go in it just it doesn't feel like a college humor or even a humor <laughs> publication unless you go in the writer's room then they're still kind of a protected cocoon of funny people who are by and large left alone to, to do whatever they think is funny. So that's good. Would you, would you ever consider starting a new one? Well, it's funny you ask that because I am insufferable and I did already. It's called blafo.com. Cause every, well, every once in a while I get an, an idea to do a funny news piece and what I'm, what else am I going to do with it? So I put it up on this site and uh, I take submissions to, and so I just, you know, run my own little publication as a side thing. And I don't ever want to do it on the scale that I did it with the onion. Like that was so much work. Like you have no idea the, the personal toll <laughs> that doing something like that takes. You just devote your life to it. You're there sundown to sun up every single day and you don't have a life. And, you know, I like my, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. writing and my exercise. <laughs> I don't want to give yeah. that up. Yeah, it's kind. Of, it's kind of. It's kind of like the fast food job you had in high school, and then you're like, I don't want to do that no more. You know, I got. <laughs> exactly. There's so many better things I could be doing. I'm, I, exactly. I don't have to work as hard anymore. Yeah, you, you know, where you get that. You get your degree, and you're like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. All right, no problem. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> makes a big difference. Yeah, you definitely want to move on from things. So I think even if they asked me to come back and run it, I would, I would say no at this point. And that's typically what will happen. I'll leave, be gone for a couple of years. I'll think I'm out. I'll think I'm done. And then they'll like try to get me back. They'll lose an editor or something. I'll say, you got to come back and help us out. 
and I'm I a don't think they're going to ask, and b I would say no at this point. What about a demotion as a writer, just for a quick article here and there? No, nah, I mean, you wouldn't even I do, do that. that. No, not I can worth your time. I write. I can write my own articles. Totally not worth my time. Like I don't need the credit. You know, it's not going to help like a, me. That's like a that's like a rock star going to sing karaoke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's like Eddie Van Halen uh, being a session musician. <laughs> All right. Uh, so once again, Scott, thank you so much. You know, uh, re we really appreciate this. This was this was awesome. Yeah, thank uh, you for your time. I know you got to dip out. You so. are welcome. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Uh, so once again, uh, so is there anything you wanna you wanna plug? You wanna tell everybody about? I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to plug. People want to hear more from me. They can check out my website, howtowritefunny.com. My podcast is the How to Write Funny Podcast, available wherever podcasts are. And my books are out there under my name. I'm on social media under my name. Scott Dickers is uh, two Ks and no C. And that's about it. All right. Uh, once again, you guys, you've been listening to John and Kevin's Big Stupid Podcast. We've had Scott Dickers on. Ladies and gentlemen, give it yes. up. One last time. Scott Dickers. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, great show. Thank you once again. Thank you so much for, for coming on. My pleasure. Um, John, you got anything else you want to say? Hey, have fun, everybody. Have fun.